This podcast is brought to you by Blackbee Ministries International. To find out more, visit blackbee.org. Welcome to the Richard Blackaby Leadership Podcast, helping take your leadership to the next level. My name is Sam, and I'm your host. On today's podcast, we have a special conversation with Mark McLean. He is the CEO and founder of SailPoint, a leader in the enterprise identity management market. He has led the company from its beginnings in 2005, as it grew from a team of three to just over 1,200 employees, and about 1,500 enterprise-class customers in 35 countries. He has been married for almost 34 years to his amazing wife, Marge, and has three incredibly cool adult children, three wonderful kids-in-law, and six adorable grandkids. He considers himself a very blessed person. His new book, Joy and Success at Work, is out now, and we'll leave links to that in the show notes. And now, the conversation with Richard and Mark. Well, I'm glad to be with you this morning, and uh, as always, when I do an interview like this, it's always exciting to hear what God's doing with uh, very unique people uh, in the business world, the church world. Uh, we've talked with people in the military, and uh, and uh, Mark McLean today we're going to be talking with, and uh, he fits in under the unusual people that I've met. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, uh, I've mentioned on the podcast before that I have the privilege of working with a lot of really wonderful CEOs, uh, Christian CEOs in uh, corporate America, and uh, Mark is one of those I've gotten to know in that context, and uh and and uh, he is a fascinating person. He also he listens to this podcast, and uh, so I'm I'm excited about that. Um, and he's actually even tried to 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 read. He has read a number of the books that we profiled, the biographies. So that should tell you something about him. But uh, Mark has uh, written a new book, and uh, and so I, I want to talk about that as well. And so Mark, welcome to the podcast this morning. Thanks, Richard. It's really, really great to be on with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. It's good to be uh, have you on this end as well. Uh, I know you've been listening, but uh, great to get you on. And, and uh, Mark, tell us just a little bit about yourself, what, what industry you're in. And I know you started at least two companies. And so tell us a little of your journey and where, where, where it's gotten you today. You bet. Yeah, I'll give you the, as I, I think I can still call it the Reader's Digest version. We're getting to an age where not everyone, not knows, everyone knows that. <laughs> uh, short version. Yeah, I, I've been in high tech for the whole, I guess I'm at my 35th year of my overall career now. And the first 10 of those years were in kind of really large organizations, Hewlett Packard and IBM. And then I kind of got the sense that maybe I wasn't best suited to the large corporate world. Came came out, I'd grown up and, and all those jobs were in California. Came out to Austin for a startup company in the mid 90s that did really well, ultimately, ironically, was acquired by IBM. But I kind of got the entrepreneurial bug by working in that small early growth business. It just had gone public, uh, done an IPO right when I got there. So a few of us were kind of in that mid tier of management that kind of rose to relatively senior tier over those four or five years. And it's and, and timing is interesting here in 2000, we thought, you know, we should start a company. This is right before the internet bubble. <laughs> um, so we got started and it was a rough start just because of the context, but but we did, you know, everybody's doing dot coms, kind of consumer things, and we were very much not that. So half our time was spent explaining to people that's not what we do. Uh, mm -hmm. We're a business to business, you know, security company. And we really had a pretty nice run for about four year run and the company got acquired. Venture capitalists were very happy. The founders all uh, did pretty well on that. And so a couple of us and a couple other folks we'd worked with said, hey, that was fun. We ought to do that again. So we, we started the, the second company. That company was called WaveSet. Started the second company called SailPoint 
about 15 years ago and honestly thought it was going to be the sequel, right? Let's do another kind of high tech thing. We'll grow it a bit and somebody will come in and buy us and we'll get a nice outcome. That's honestly what I thought was going to happen. Hmm. And it almost did. A couple of times we had some pretty serious dialogues with being acquired by very large, well-known tech companies. But instead, we kind of went down a path that ultimately led to us IPO and public offering. So um, never really thought I would be a public CEO. It wasn't part of my life goal or plan, but we we managed to kind of navigate through a pretty good growth period and, and went public in late 17. So we've been public coming up on three years. The company's now in like 35 countries, almost 1,300 employees around the world. It's, it's as I like to say, it's become a real business. <laughs> um, so uh, we, we definitely have had some really fascinating experiences along the way. Uh, so that's sort of the super short version. <laughs> wow. And so you, uh, we have a lot of people, I know Sam here is, uh, he loves entrepreneurial things, starting companies and, and just the creativity of that. T- tell us in a, maybe a, a, a nutshell, what, what is the advantage, uh, the thrill of starting your own business and, and what's the downside of that? Just so we get full oh, disclosure yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, there's downside? Um, yeah, look, I, I have a little bit of a different view on this. Um, one is that I'm more of an advocate. Every, we all kind of reflect our own stories, I suppose, at the end of the day. I'm much more of an advocate of people starting their first company after they've been working for 10 or 15 years. That's not the mythology that everybody loves. You know, we, I like to say we know the guys' names by first name that did different. You know, mm. Bill, uh, Steve, <laughs> Steve. Uh, Michael, you know, at least in tech industry, right? Gates, Jobs, Dell. These guys dropped out of Harvard typically or some famous college and built one of the world's most amazing. Uh, of course, Facebook with Zuckerberg, right? Um but, but that's, that's the exceptions, really, right? At the end of the day, those are the exceptions of all the thousands and tens of thousands of businesses that get started. We know those handful because they are the freaks of nature, right? They, you might be the next Steve Jobs, but I would not bank on that. And so um, I always tell people, you're far better off kind of learning something, you know, get into an industry, understand the nature of it, understand where the gaps are. I, I'm big on the concept that the best way to build a sustainable business is to understand market pain better than others. Hmm. Because building great products, having creative engineers or technology people or, or actual physical builders of products, things like that, it, the people that ultimately win, I contend, are the ones that understand the frustrations or pain points of the potential customer, then they have a higher likelihood of building a far better solution, right? There's so many products, somebody dreams something up and they think people will like it. Yeah. Um, quite often, they don't really understand what people need, right? So my entrepreneurial advice to people is generally... You may have a brilliant idea that you could just came up out of your head in the shower. That's the mythology. Mm-hmm. But, but more often than not, a lot of successful businesses get built because people came out of an industry and understood the frustrations of people in that market or industry and then built a better mousetrap. I really think that's a lot higher likelihood success path. Hmm. Wow. Well, wow. so what's been your biggest headache in, in starting starting your well, companies? Well, they're, they're starting and building and they're, and they're related but different, right? Starting depending on the thing you're starting a lot, this is where you can get into a lot of lively dialogue with people generally take some kind of funding. Right? <laughs> and so that's where a lot of the pain is, right? Do you, do you go raise what's often called friends and family money? And of course we all know typically a lot of horror stories yeah. where people took friends and family money. It didn't work out. And friends and family relationships took yeah. a pretty former, big hit. Former friends. So, um, so there's that aspect, and then there's, but there's a, um, and my good friend, fairly good friend, I, I shouldn't overplay that, Henry Kaster, right, the whole face-driven entrepreneur crowd, 
you know, they're, they're very big. And a lot of Christian um, entrepreneurs are very big on retaining control so they can make sure that the company's values and even their mission stays true to Christian values. And I respect that. I, I do think there are, there are ways where you can build a company that isn't an explicitly Christian business, but has very good values, but, but chases a market with outside funding from typical venture capitalists or other funding sources. So there's the, how to get it started is a lot about where's the market pain, how do you identify it and solve it, and then how do you fund a business, right? Yeah. Then, like you said, Richard, the, the, the growth of it is where often this is where it would get so hard, right? Because mm. just like in raising a teenager, it's always one of my favorite metaphors for entrepreneurship. <laughs> like, you know, you're going to hit some rough spots. You know, if you go in thinking you're not, prepare to get blindsided and experience pain, right? So mm. the entrepreneurs that typically survive are those that kind of retain this optimism balanced with realism. They have to believe that somehow, some way they'll get through this but they can't just be dreamers, right? They, yeah. they have to have practical application of skills to go actually work through challenges and problems. Well, and you, it's a, and it's a different kind of leadership, isn't it? That's why a lot of people who start things don't, they don't build things. They start it and they move That's on right. and they start something else, but you've been there 15 years. Uh, and so you, you, your leadership has to have changed over the time. It has, it has. And, and, and you're right about that, by the way, it's, it was kind of moving, I guess is the word and somewhat fascinating when we went through the IPO, my, my co-founder, he's since actually retired, but we were there and, and the guy who was running the New York Stock Exchange kind of, you have this little ceremony slash gathering before you out and go out and do the whole bell ringing and all that stuff yeah. that everybody's knows about. And he gave this, actually, I got choked up. He gave this kind of moving talk of, you know, the history of capitalism and American business, and all this stuff. But then he really, you know, and I thought it was really going to be an insert name here, sale point. We're so happy <laughs> to have you here today. And, but it really had done some homework somebody had for him. And he talked about how rare it was for founders to actually be there ringing a bell, to mm. your point, yeah. right? That's a pretty unusual thing. Like, typically the skills it takes to get something going are not always the same skills that it takes to build it and, and get it to that scale, to mm. your point. I I've, uh, my, my view, and this does come out in the book, uh, you know, I wrote is, is that the values are core to what's common <laughs> uh, through that journey. You know, I, I'm a big be believer in get your values really clear and, and, you know, re re rinse and repeat often and talk about them often because the way you do business, how you build products, how you go to market will probably adapt over time as you scale. It almost has to, right? Yeah. Well, now you're one other thing just about your your company. Uh, you and you you touched on this saying there's such a such a thing as a Christian business uh, that is mm -hmm. just very overtly Christian in all that it does. And then there there are businesses that are run by Christians and have that are whether whether there's a scripture verse next to the the corporate value or not. You 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 know that those values are all biblically based. But so how where would you place your your company? I mean, and how do you do that? Because I know a lot of there's a lot of Christian folks in the in the business world that I mean, they, they want to be true to Jesus, but it's there's a struggle, and and certainly some industries it's a lot harder to be overt than others. Some you know yep. you you can be pretty pretty overt about it, and as, if you're in the South selling Chick Fil A, you know you people expect that they expect to have Christian music playing in the bathrooms, and uh, but then there's other in the tech industry. I'm I'm guessing just that basic culture is not quite so overt. And so how, how have you nav? I, I know there's not just one way, but how have you navigated that? No, I think it's really, you're capturing the essence of it, Richard. I think 
I, I started the company with good, solid, moral, ethical people. And, and my leadership team continues to be filled with good, solid, moral, ethical people. They don't necessarily share my faith worldview, but I don't believe that's critical for us to have a coherent you know, strategy of how to build our company as long as they support those values. And as you say, our values don't have scripture verses, but my my fellow believers that read our four core values typically go, I kind of see where those came from. <laughs> huh. You know, yeah. uh, they've got biblical underpinnings. And I used to say, my, my shorthand Richard was always saying, we'll never have a fish on our business card or the front door of the building, right? <laughs> it's just not that company, right? <laughs> I, I see those guys all the time, my, the carpenter, the plumber, or the what they had the little fish. And I'm like, I love you for doing that. That's fantastic. <laughs> it just, yeah, in the world of tech and, and in and business to business, both of those domains, far less of that you typically see than in kind of consumer facing, I think. Hmm. Um, doesn't mean it's undoable. And, and I respect people that have taken a different path. I felt like, you know, my, my thinking was I wanted to surround myself with the best people that I could to, to successfully build a business. And, and I, I certainly couldn't have them fighting my core value system, <laughs> yeah. but, but it was okay if they didn't fully ascribe to it. And that's kind of how we've worked it out over time. We have a very strong kind of Christian subculture, I guess I'd call it in the company. So that's kind of the way we've, we've managed that. And you, you have uh, uh, chaplains as well, don't you, in your company? We, do. we used to have an external firm who I still love those guys. There's kind of two big ones in the U.S., marketplace chaplains and corporate chaplains. Mm -hmm. We actually were blessed to have a couple of folks internally who really had a heart for that. And we ultimately found that that, that they, they by being in truly inside the company, uh, were able to relate, I think, more to our culture and our type of working. Mm. Um, there is less of the chaplaincy play I've learned in the world of tech, not surprisingly. I think a lot of it is in, in, in you know, uh, consumer-facing businesses or manufacturing or different kind of settings. High tech is a tough place for this. Um, yeah. Although there's a lot of, of stress, uh, and, and you mentioned this in your book, uh, the, yeah. I think the two, the two number one issues that, that came up were like kids and teenagers and the aging parents were the issues that, uh, that, and which, which I know some of our listeners probably are intrigued by that, how you can offer chaplains in a way that's not offensive to your staff. I mean, have your staff been pretty open to having a, cause it's not in your face kind no, of that's... stuff that they're doing. No, and I'll tell you, my my head, she's now the chief people officer, uh, we call her instead of just VP of HR, but she is a wonderful woman, love her to death. She is very amenable to the faith. I wouldn't say that she's fully embraced it herself, but but on this by the same token, she and I had some very vigorous conversations about if we were going to do this, how was this going to work? And, and mm -hmm. we sort of had this, um, look, if, if you ever hear of somebody feeling like it got jammed down in their throat throat, I guess we'll have to pull the plug on this, right? Kind of like we will not, to use the fancy Christian word, proselytize, right? Mm -hmm. We will not have anybody trying to make conversions at work as a, as a programmatic thing. Mm -hmm. What we said was, what's fascinating, and, and you know this, Richard, we're roughly the same vintage, right? The, 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 um, the ability to bring up the concepts or topic of spirituality in the workplace has totally changed, right? Mm -hmm. When I started my career at IBM in the mid 80s, you couldn't talk about, quote, religion at work. It was pretty taboo. Like you get a ding from your boss if they heard you doing that in the hallway, literally. Hmm. And now it's so OK to bring up spirituality. So under that umbrella and in this world of tolerance, right, people feel like, hey, I can certainly tell you about my story. I can express my views as long as I'm not thrusting them on you. Yeah. And so that was sort of the way we were able to navigate that to say, look, we want to make this available. 
people know it's my worldview, but they, I think they're comfortable that that's not my nature to shove it on people in, in any way. And so it's worked for us, but it's still a tricky thing to navigate. Some people still react a little bit to, wait a minute, you know, why do you guys have a Bible study at work? Like, cause we can, if you want to have a Torah study at work, you can, right? Like mm-hmm. we're not going to, we're not going to prevent other faiths from doing that if they really want to do that. That's the tolerance world we live in. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I know that's a, a place a lot of business uh, leaders agonize because they think, well, I am a Christian and God has given me this influence. I want to be respectful of other people, but at the same time, I'm a steward here. And if, right. if God calls me to give an account at some point and says, I gave you 1300 employees uh, under your influence, did you even influence them a, a millimeter in my direction the whole time you had access to them? Uh, you know, I, I know there's that sort of struggle, but um, to, to know in your industry and to, to, I love the, the biblical word prudence, you know, what, how, how prudently can you do that and, and still be <clears throat> following laws and, and respecting people's uh, rights. But, well, you, you have a, a new book that is hot off the press. I'm holding it here in my hand. Uh, very substantial looking uh, book. Uh, I didn't know you knew that many words. <laughs> uh, I had to borrow a few from others. <laughs> very good book called Joy and Success at Work. And then we have to mention the byline uh, here, the subtitle, uh, Building Organizations That Don't Suck the Life Out of People. And uh, I love that uh, that play there. Uh, but you you lead off the whole thing. This is a tech company, uh, and the first word in your title is the word joy, um, and uh, I I and then success. Uh, and you put those two together. And I know as you unpack this. But by the way, I, I really love the format of this book. A lot of short, uh, pointed chapters. Uh, you're you're a funny guy. I I, I should say in the classes that uh, that. Uh, Mark is a part of with me. Uh, he's sort of the uh, the resident comedian that has the uh, irreverent, uh, humorous comments, <laughs> and so uh, that comes oh, out. Irreverent, Richard, irreverent. <laughs> you're going to get me in trouble with your listeners. <laughs> well, I probably put, put you in higher standing, but uh, but uh, so for, this is a great a great read because uh, packed with wisdom from years and decades of uh, successful experience. Uh, easy to read, fun to read, uh, very honest uh, as well. And you and you touch on so many interesting topics. But uh, let, let me try just in these um, moments we have left here, just to try to get you to maybe pull out a few of those. But but I mean, maybe let's just start with joy. And, and by the way, you, you say something interesting right mm-hmm. off the bat. You talk about that, that whole search for bal- a balanced life. And you, you sort of mm-hmm. address that work life or life work, uh, way of approaching, uh, this whole issue. And so, you know, you talk about joy, you talk about what it, what it means to, when you're striving for a balanced life and you kind of have a, an interesting take on that. What, how do you approach that? Well, a couple thoughts on that. Yeah. The, I, I read something years ago and I think the book's out of long out of print. Um, but it had the concept of a wheel. We've all seen some flavor of that, right. Where, you know, your life is a series of a, a wheel or pipe pie wedges, you know, mm-hmm. your, your family, your job, your health, um, things like that. And, and, and I think there's this mythology in this life work balance that you can find some uh, stasis. Like I will get it to where it's 12% this 14% that 17% yeah. that, and yeah. I'll just hold it there. Right. 
And, and uh, my pastor, good buddy, Matt Cassie, who's been our senior pastor uh, of the church I've served in for years, he's, he's, and I had this great conversation, we actually did a sermon on this once about this concept of a temporary healthy imbalance is the way life actually works, right? Mm-hmm. You have times when various parts of your life become imbalanced. You're, you're in a crunch at work because there's a big deadline. You've got a sick spouse or child. You've, um, you've got a new company starting up, right? <laughs> Where all of a sudden some wedge almost by definition has to take priority and precedence. But the trick is to do that, even to do that in a healthy way and for it to be temporary, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, where people wake up and this is, I, I kind of try to put a little fear in some of the young entrepreneurs I talk to of like, look, you don't want to wake up at 50 living in a mansion by yourself on your, uh, after your third divorce yeah. with kids in rehab. I know guys like that, mm-hmm. you know, like if you get that wedge out of balance and you never try to rebalance and all of a sudden you've lost your family and in many cases lost your health. That's another common story. Right. Hmm. And, and so there's this sense of, yeah, you can pursue a vision as an entrepreneur. You, and you talk about this, Richard, a lot pastors, right. They can get as out of balance as entrepreneurs. Oh, right? for sure. Yeah. And, and so there's this sense of always maintaining, like, am I, am I, even though I'm kind of imbalanced right now, and I probably live in a state of imbalance most of the time, a little bit, it has to be relatively temporary. I like to say, you know, if you're working an 80 hour a week for a week, that happens. If you're working 80 hour a week for a month, boy, that's a tough stretch. Mm-hmm. If you're doing that for six months, you have broken something. <laughs> like yeah. that is not sustainable, right? Yeah. And and so I think I think that idea of people just constantly rebalancing and doing their best to maintain a healthy, you know, look, honey, I know I'm limited, but I can carve out one night for us to go to dinner in the middle of this crunch I'm in. So I don't lose touch entirely with my wife, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I think that's the, it's a conscious effort, I guess is the big thought. There. Yeah. And you know, and I know there's a bunch of people feeling very guilty because they know that at the moment they're not living a balanced <laughs> life, but there's a deadline and they have to, and I'll, I'll be honest yep. with you. And I, and I'm one of those, I've had people throw in balance at me all my life and, uh, and yet, to be honest with you, the people that have a perfectly balanced life, like the the pie that you're talking about, I, I never see them accomplishing all that much. <laughs> they're, right. they're balanced. Uh, right. I mean, that's their accomplishment, I guess. But uh, as far as accomplishing things, uh, starting things, it's hard if you're not at least temporarily uh, out of I, That's right. And, and, I, and again, it's temporary. That's the point. And I, and I like to say, you, it's also how you measure balance. If you're measuring balance by day or by week, it's pretty hard to be right. balanced. Right. If you're going to do it over the course of a year and, or over the a course of a month, yeah, you, you, right. you make it up here and there and, and it, you know, it adds up and balances out over time, but, uh, you got to, right. it's how you measure that. But you also talk about just passion. I thought it was interesting. You say about, uh, and you, you, you work with a lot of young people, certainly in the tech industry, you're always uh, interviewing folks who are starting out their career and you're looking for talent and, uh, you have a lot of good things to say, a lot of good advice about that. But you know, one thing that gets said a lot in, uh, graduation speeches is, you know, follow your passion. What, what do you, Pat, what, what could you enjoy where it's not even really going to work? It's just, uh, you're just doing what you have fun doing. Uh, and how do you, I mean, what, what's your advice on that? Because obviously, I mean, you're, you're just written a book about having joy in your life and your business. So, uh, how do you, how do you take that passion as you're looking where to spend your life and in a career and, uh, and how do you, how do you work all that out? 
Boy, that's that's a packed question right there. Um, you know, I think I, I'd like to say to some of the younger millennial type friends, I have like, hey, it's great to pursue your passion as long as it pays the bills. <laughs> um, you know, there's a sense of that's one thing that gets broken and people like, you know, just go, there's this kind of mythology in our, in our self-help culture of just go do, you can do anything you want. I'm like, no, you can't. I'm a 5'10 white guy. I was never going to play in the NBA. Sorry. <laughs> I can't do anything. Like that. Um, but, but I think there's a sense of, you know, pursuing something you have a lot of interest in is smart, but a, a, I think there is a sense of, you know, accountability, responsibility, what you do generally needs to support yourself. Yeah. There's that aspect of it. But I think the danger, more dangerous thing, Richard, for that as a, as a thing in our culture today is this idea that if I'm in the right job, I will be happy all day, every day. Cause I'm pursuing my passion. I'm like, that's the same mythology of being in love and marriage where all day, every day you are in this blissful state. And mm -hmm. the truth is, Marriage is work. Work is work. They have many, many ecstatically happy moments, but sometimes it's just hard. And sometimes you have to work through challenges and do difficult things and admit you're sorry and all that stuff. And so what I worry about with this passion fascination in our culture is it's setting people up for this unrealistic expectation. And then when they crash against reality, they think, oh, I must be in the wrong job because I'm not happy. I should change to another passion, right? Like, no, you may have been in the right passionate place. You just didn't have the right expectation that some days it was still going to be really hard, right? Mm. And I think that's what I worry about with the young a little more these days is that they're, they're thinking, if I'm in the right kind of pursuit, passion, mission, whatever, every day will be great. It's like, no, no, that's not right. Um, you know, and again, I, I always kind of tie that into the marriage thought, like, you know, if the first time you have an argument with your wife, you think I married the wrong person. No, no, that's not correct. Yeah. You know, you, you're, you're going to have to work through that argument and, and stay committed. Right. Mm. Now you, you say so many interesting things and in, uh, through this book, I, one thing that stood, lots of things stood out to me, but one that's interesting is you, you had a founding partner and uh, you, you had a philosophy of sharing offices as long as possible. So here you are, a founder of yes. the company, CEO, and you're sharing an office. Uh, now, what was what was behind that? Well, first off, it was just doggone frugality back in the day, <laughs> um, right? Uh, I, our first uh, startup, Richard, I remember distinctly this statistic. We had 27 people in 2,500 square feet. <laughs> so it was snug. Um, but um, no, part of it was frugality, but then later on, it kind of became a couple of other things. One was, you know, the nature of a startup, it's very fluid and very dynamic. There's nothing, it's like living in a home with your spouse. There's nothing like just having constant access, living in the same office where, hey, I was just thinking of something. You flip your chair around and you're right there and you're having a conversation, right? Hmm. Um, the other side of it though, was it was a wonderful example of what was important in the early days of a company, right? Like, if, if you joined a startup so you could have, you know, a lot of people join a startup because they don't want to work for people. We've all heard that reason. I always say that is a very bad reason to start a company. But, um, you know, a lot of it also is I get to define my own space. I get to do all these things. It's like we wanted it to be a bit, look, it's about building a successful business. So you're not going to have a fancy office. This was in the book too, right? We had kind of crappy offices and desks, <laughs> but we let you have your own good chair. Yeah. Right. We $200. Go buy a chair. Not, but not a, a thousand dollar Herman yeah. Miller chair though. So that's right. And by the way, this is before the sit stand craze. There were no Veridesks back 20 years ago. Right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, this idea, like, 
part of it was a, a practical communication advantage we learned. The other part of it was setting the example of what matters, right? Like we're not here to have fancy accoutrements in our office. We're here to get a job done and we'll have a lot of fun doing it and we'll goof around and, mm. and all that. But like, you know, fancy offices was not a vibe we wanted to create in company. And then it just kind of stuck for a long time. And finally we got to the point of like, yeah, maybe this is getting a little less practical. <laughs> but like, really, we're over 10 years in. I think we wow. shared that office for over 10 years. Wow. Yeah. And you had a big uh, Elvis uh, cutout there in that office, I understand. So, uh, <laughs> oh, that's a whole story. They got to they gotta go read the book for that. Story. Yeah, that's, that's I'll just, that'll be a teaser there. But, well, one other thing, just, and you, you know, hire, you talk a lot about culture and the kind of culture you want. And, uh, and, and two things you said is one, when it comes to, of course, the tech industry, you got a lot of uber brilliant people, uh, right. not necessarily, uh, I mean, the tech also is not always known as they're high on the people skill side of things right. necessarily. But, but two things you said is you want to avoid high maintenance people, and you don't want to <laughs> hire you don't want any smart jerks. <laughs> yes. And so, yes, and we give credit where it's due. I borrowed some of those concepts. Well, I didn't borrow them from him. He wrote the book about it. We'd already had the concept. Pat Lincioni, who's one of my favorite yeah. Christian business wrote a book called the ideal team player and he captures these you know characteristics of people but yeah that is, that is the best shorthand is just don't hire smart jerks right <laughs> people that are super competent but poisonous right and we most of us that have led for a while have learned how how, how important that is you you let somebody stay in the organization who's awesome at whatever they do selling engineering but if they're poisonous if they're negative if they drag down the team around them no person is worth it i've learned painfully no no single person is so bad. And you convince yourself of that times, right? At times, like, no, we can't live without that amazing engineer, developer, you know, marketer. It's like, yeah, we can and we have to. Yeah. Right? There's no one person who's worth it if they're creating that kind of, you know, I'll call them a cancer causing agent. Mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. if they're creating that kind of negativity around them, you got to deal with that. Yeah. And, the, and, and I think probably a lot of us, uh, the listeners here have at least one person in their organization that they just, they, they put up with. And it's, yep. and how long do you put up with this person for whatever reason and really measuring the, the contribution uh, compared to the, what they're taking away is uh, is a tough one sometimes. Well, you maybe one last question here for you just for our time is gone. You've got four eyes that kind of oh, yes. you build your company around. And uh, I know it's not, not really fair to try to unpack your the essence of your company and values in a brief moment, but uh, maybe just kind of highlight those for us. What are your four, these are the four eyes that you built your company on. Yeah, both companies actually, 20 years across two companies. Um, yeah, I, I always joke, no, I was a lot younger 20 years ago, but you know, <laughs> thankfully four eyes make it easier to remember now that I'm old. Um, yeah, the four eyes are really easy to rattle off, right? The first is innovation, which is we develop creative solutions to real customer problems. They, we wanted to have this core value of always being creative and innovative and thinking of new ways to solve problems. And mm. you know, I think as a tech startup, particularly that's sort of table stakes at one level, you have to be innovative to create new solutions to, mm. you know, be better. I always say if IBM could build the same thing we could, nobody would ever buy it from us because they'd go to a quote trusted vendor, right? Hmm. So it had to be a creative, innovative way. And that was that pain thing I talked about, Richard, of that outside in market driven approach to let's understand the market pain better, then we'll ultimately build a better solution, right? Hmm. Um, the second was um, <laughs> integrity. And I, I laughingly say, I don't know a company who doesn't have integrity as one of its core values, sadly. I um, think Enron had but, integrity. Enron, <laughs> that's where I was going. The most famous one was Enron. <laughs> We define that very specifically, though. We said we deliver on the commitments we make. 
So I always kind of, when I give a talk on this, I say, look, honesty is table stakes. If I can't fundamentally trust you, we don't have much of a relationship. Hmm. But integrity, we define as we're going to follow through and do what we say we're going to do. And it, boy, I tell you, sadly, that has become a competitive differentiator. Wow. <laughs> like so many wow. companies fail to deliver on their promise now. Right? And we live that all day, every day. That's You'll hear sometimes people talking about customer delight or being delighting your customers. That usually comes from exceeding expectations. It was better than I expected. Oh my gosh, that so rarely happens. It caught my attention. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's so like getting an, call- it's like I find you ask someone for an estimate and then it's always over. Yeah. It's like, well, what's the point of giving an estimate if you right. all of a sudden, oh, we didn't count for this or I didn't know about that. So it's going to be more. It's like, well, then you, right. there's, there's no value at all. And you telling me what to expect. That's right. No. Yeah. Just, and, and that's just so common. People just say, Oh, I'm not going to be able to do what I said, or it's going to cost more. It's going to be take longer. And I'm like, let's just not be those people. Right. Uh, um, uh. And that's been a thing. For us. The third eye is impact, which is we measure and reward results, not activity. Wow. <laughs> and the reason that one was a factor, as you can imagine, is, you know, we've all lived in organizations where people, I like to say, stir up a cloud of dust. They <laughs> appear to be creating activity and yeah. doing something, but they're not actually moving forward at all. Hmm. And, you know, early in a startup, that was easy to spot, frankly, in a small, and you've done this in churches. I mean, you can just see when someone is not making a contribution. Mm-hmm. And back to the, if you've hired well, if you've hired the right kind of people, the first instinct should be, okay, this is a good person. Hopefully there's something wrong here. Either I haven't been clear about what's expected or they don't know how to do it or they don't have the skills and tools. So the first instinct is how can I help this person succeed? Mm-hmm. But pretty quickly you have to say, and if you still can't get it done, we're going to have an issue, right? Because yeah. we have to all be contributing, right? Yeah. And, and, the, and the fourth I is individuals, which is we value every person in our company. And I always kind of tie that to the third one, which is we have good people who have been contributing and then they're not or something's going wrong. Again, your first instinct should be what's going on here. Hmm. Is this person going through a hard thing in the background personally that I don't see? Is there, is there a divorce looming? Is there a troubled teenager, all those things we talked about. So that idea of valuing people, um, and, and that's where I feel like, you know, my Christian worldview comes through the strongest. Like I always kind of say the shorthand is treat people like adults, which is sort of treat people like the way you want to be treated, which hmm. is golden rule stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like just treat people like the, the good, hopefully ethical people they're trying to be. And if they're having issues, help them work them out. Right. Wow. And and sometimes you come to the conclusion that this person is no longer the right fit. And and that was hard for me as an early leader and manager. But I've learned like, you know what, if they're not doing well here, there's probably somewhere they can do well. So let's mm-hmm. let's, you know, let's create an environment for them to go do something. Yeah. And sometimes people just outgrow what they're doing or the, or the company outgrows them. So I've learned to be a lot more comfortable with, you know, it's sometimes okay to make changes if you do them for the right reasons and you treat people with respect. Huh. And, and how hard has it been to stick to those four values oh, over 20 years brutal brutal <laughs> the same way it's hard to stick to first corinthians 13 in marriage right i can read that off and know that i should be patient and kind and all those things and then every so often i'm a jerk um, and, um, i remind myself that's not what i'm supposed to do as a husband um and i think it's the same thing you just constantly have to be vigilant but what i always say to our new hires when they start richard i, I give you a kind of i still that's a thing i still talk to every group of new hires in the company personally about our values and that's been the message, right? Um, that's the message of how important it is. But I always say, look, at the end of the day, part of the reason we talk about this is we want you to never think these are a plaque on the wall, right? Like yeah. we have failed if these are a plaque on the wall. This is the way we want to run the company. 
operate our business, treat each other, and the, and I want to be held accountable, right? If I tell you this is our values and your experience somewhere down in the organization is it doesn't feel like that, I'm like, come in my office and tell me. I'm giving you permission, hmm. you know? This is what we're aspiring to be, and if we're not, then you should tell me so I can fix it, wow. right? So that, that really rattles people. <laughs> They're like, wait, <laughs> really? You want me to come tell you if somebody's not being cool? I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> That's how we fix it, right? Wow, so, wow. Well, hey, Mark, uh, one last question here. Now we're we're out of time, but uh, you, what have you, what have you learned through COVID nineteen? You know, every mm. every CEO has faced unprecedented challenge here. That uh, there's no playbook to tell you what to do. Any any yeah. one lesson that you've walked away from? Uh, the tech industry is a little bit different. You're actually hiring, while right. a lot of others are laying off and uh, furloughing. But uh, what what's the at least one takeaway when when your leadership after 20 or 30 years you hit something you'd never hit before well i'll, I'll, I'll kind of give it a 1a and a 1b that are highly related one is that all those investments we made in culture have paid off in spades right people have gone overboard to take care of each other reach into the community I, let me give you a silly example we did breakfast tacos every friday morning it's a thing in texas right <laughs> and brought tacos into the whole company it turns out that was a lot of tacos by the size we've gotten to and um and and one of my super strong culture leaders when we all had to go home and quit working in the office, she goes well why don't we redirect that and bring tacos to the healthcare workers in austin i'm like that's awesome <laughs> right mm. and and it's like, I didn't come up with that. The, the the leadership didn't come up with that, right? That's where he's like, the culture is now so integrated into how people operate. They wanted to immediately take something that was for us and face it outward into the community because we could help that way, right? I thought that was just such a cool story. Yeah. Um, but I think what I've learned probably the most important thing for me, it's what we're doing right here, Richard, on Zoom. Um, I, I, was, I had gotten sloppy, I think is the right term for it, about communication. What I mean is, I don't think we're ever going back to eight people in the room and two people on the phone, mm. <laughs> right? Because I don't think we all fully appreciated that if everybody isn't sort of on an equal footing for communication, it's bad. Mm. Like, like either we should all be in the room so we can all see each other and have a conversation and see the body language and read it, or we should all be on Zoom and we should have the same, because I've heard from my international and some of my remote people like, this has been the greatest thing ever. Huh. I feel like I'm sort of on equal footing now with everyone. I, before I always felt like I'm trying to break in over the phone on a conversation, you know, and we're global, right? We're international, we have people all over the world. So to me, this was a big learning, hmm. right? Like wow, we have to make sure everyone feels like they can participate equally and fully. And, you know, as Lencioni said, life in business is about meetings. I mean, that's what you do all day, every day. You're meeting and, hmm. you know, solving problems, working on issues. And and boy, that that way we were inadvertently hampering communications has just become a big one for me. Like, we're not doing that again. We're wow. not going back to that. Wow. Yeah, I think people have concluded we, we're not going back to normal. That there is a new normal, and that's that's okay. It, it'll be probably a better normal. It'll be an upgraded normal. Um, yes. And because you 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 can, you can learn from every crisis, and uh, and certainly I yes. think the the successful companies are coming out better and smarter as a result. Well, well, Mark, there is so much uh, that I, we could pick your brain all day, and I appreciate you giving us the time in between all of your Zoom meetings today. But uh, we'll in the in the notes, we'll leave uh, all the uh, ways you can get a hold of uh, joy and success at work. Uh, just loaded with great, great uh, practical advice. If you're a business leader of any sort, or just a, or any kind of leader, uh, lots of just uh, wisdom and relating to people. A real, real fun way of uh, fun read. 
and I hope that you guys will check him out. We'll put the, uh, the, a link to his uh, company um, website as well uh, if you'd like to, to check out his services and what they can do. Great, great uh, Christian leader. It always encourages me just to know that God has put uh, these wonderful Christian leaders right in the midst of the marketplace where people live and work uh, each week. And uh, hope that encourages you as uh, listeners just to know. Uh, and we've got some more folks like Mark we'll be interviewing in the, in the weeks to come. But uh, Mark, thanks for giving us uh, this time. Uh, you just had your sixth grandchild recently, so I know there's a whole lot of uh, stuff going on in your life. But thanks for giving us this time. And uh, thanks for listening into the podcast yourself, Mark. Listen to the, the latest podcast, uh, I think, this morning before coming on. So uh, we're, we're impressed. Not and, a <laughs> but uh, well, thanks a lot, Mark. And, uh, and we'll look forward to uh, being with all of you next week as well. Thanks, Richard. Great talking to you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If this is something you enjoyed, it really makes a difference if you leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We always love hearing from our listeners. So email us at podcast at blackv.org.